0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm glad all of you got to come out and join us for worship this morning. We're going to be in the book of Ezra, chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, I would ask you to turn there. We've already read it, so we're not going to read it again as of right now. <clears throat> but it always is very helpful, especially for myself, and I think it would be for everyone to uh, be able to follow along in your own words. So whether you have it in the print or you have it and you charged it last night, uh, however you have your Bible, I would ask you to be in Ezra chapter 9 and follow along as we uh, as we teach in this. I'd like to pray one more time before we get started. If you don't mind, let's pray. Father, I just come to you right now and I ask you, Lord, that you would... um. Lord, just to enlighten us, Father, I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to be able to see what it is that you mean for us to glean from these scriptures this morning. Father, I pray, God, that you would give us hearts that would receive it. Father, I pray, God, that, uh, Lord, whatever we take from it, Father, that we would be able to apply it to our lives. And, Father, I do ask you, Lord, that, Lord, each and every one of us would be able to leave here today a little closer to you, Father, a little more like you. Father, I pray, God, that you would um, help us to see uh, sin in our own life, Father, that we can put off. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to see your ways that we can put on. Father, I just pray, God, that you would accomplish your purpose in your word this morning. God, we're we're here because we want to hear from you. Father, do what you do best. Father, change hearts. Lord, make us more like you. Father, we ask you to do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. I forgot to mention too, before I get into the message this morning, that um, um, next Wednesday night, or I think it's this Wednesday, is it this Wednesday night? This Wednesday night at 6.30, uh, we are going to have an, a leaders meeting for Awanas. And so if, if you could be here for that, they would greatly appreciate it. So um, this, this Wednesday at 6.30, and then I just want to uh, really encourage you as parents, um, as this kicks off, this is such a great ministry. And so I just pray, and I just hope that you will um, that you'll be part of this. And I know um, uh, midweek, and uh, with the way work schedules are today, sometimes it's difficult to make it. But if it's any way possible that you can sacrifice and you can be here, um, we have a great, I believe, adult adult. Wednesday night class, and then also um, just great ministry for your kids, too. So uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, to take part in that. As school starts back, Iwana's is a great ministry for them, and I pray that you would be a part of that. And then um, I'd also like to ask all of the small group leaders. This be the last thing, I promise. I'd like to ask all of the small group leaders, if you're a host for a small group or you are a leader for a small group, either one, I would like for you to put on your calendar for August the 13th. That's a Sunday at um, 2.15 p.m. Let's call it that. Give everybody time to go get some lunch and come back. I'd like to have a meeting with all of the small group leaders. So I would like to ask you to, um, unless you're just going to be out of town, come see me before that, but be a part of that. And then we're going to re-kick off our small group stuff, refocus it, and then try to figure out how we can get as many people involved in that and what our purpose is in it. So if you can be a part of that on August the 13th, I would appreciate that very much. Back to Ezra. Whenever we study the Old Testament Scriptures, and I know for some of you that has been here through the whole thing, this is going to sound like me beating a dead horse. But it's very important that you see this. God gave us the stories of the Old Testament that He gave us because they are always painting a picture for what God is doing in the life of sinners and how He is redeeming them and calling Him to Himself and how He is bringing them into a place to where He will dwell with them and be king over us forever and ever. And so whenever we look at all of the Old Testament stories... The point is that there is always a group of people that is being called out of bondage and sin and slavery. And then this, this uh, group is called onto a journey to come to a place to where they will dwell with God and they will learn His ways. And, and then every story that we read, we also see that somewhere along the way, sin begins to creep back in. Whether you're looking at the um, the, um, the Israelites that were saved from the slavery of Egypt, making their journey through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and then in the middle of the wilderness, the first thing that happens when God is fixing to teach them His ways is that He looks down the mountain, and what does He see them doing? They're building a golden calf. They're sinning there, and so, and little by little, you see throughout this that sin begins to creep into the camp. And if it is not dealt with, it grows. And and sin is not something that if it just goes completely untouched, that it's just going to eventually go away. That's not what happens. It always grows and it always becomes worse. And sin always leads to destruction. Every time. And so it has to be dealt with when sin is in the camp. Or when we're studying this story of Ezra, what you're going to see today is the same thing. God calls a group of people out of the bondage and slavery of Babylon this time, and then He leads them on a dangerous journey to the place to where they will dwell with Him and learn His ways. And now we get to the part in chapter 9 today that when they get there, just a short time after they get there, they get there and they start sacrificing to God, they start worshiping God, And then all of a sudden, some people come to Ezra and they give Ezra a report that there is sin in the camp. And this is the same thing that we see today in our stories. So as we read this and as we see what it is that God wants us to get from this text, I want you to think about the fact that you're writing your story today. Or let me say this, God is writing your story today. And ultimately, He is calling you out of your sin and slavery. And then He is taking you on a journey through your wilderness and through your red seas and the obstacles that you have to face as you are going to the place to where you will dwell with Him. And along the way, sin begins to creep back into your life. Can I get an amen? Amen. And it has to be dealt with. And so what we're going to see today, and I believe this is the main point of this text when we study Ezra chapter 9 and 10, the main point is we need to learn how to respond to sin in the church and how to learn from sin in the church. And you're going to see both of that in here. You're going to see how... The leaders responded to sin in the church. And you're going to see how the people in the church responded to their sin as far as the ones that were true believers and genuinely were being called out of sin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see what we can learn from sins in the church. And we're going to pick all of those things out as we go through this thing. I want you to pay attention to the fact that whenever Ezra gets this news, what you're going to see is that he doesn't take this news of sin as, um, with a grain of salt. He takes this as so serious that Ezra rips his clothes. He pulls some of his hair out of his head. He pulls some of his hair out of his beard. And he sits down appalled and crying at the altar of God from the morning sacrifice all the way to the evening sacrifice. For basically, basically what I'm telling you is this, Ezra sees this sin in the camp as so serious that it breaks him. And he mourns all day long because of the sin in the nation of Israel. And so I want you to be able to, to see that we need to understand that Sin is not something, no matter how small it is, that we should look at it in our lives and say, well, you know, it's not really that big a deal. God knows I'm a sinner and God knows that He's He's bringing me out of sin and into this. No, we need to be able to look at sin in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters and understand that it is a heartbreaking thing when we understand what it's going to lead to if it's not dealt with. And that's exactly what we see in this text today. So if you've got an outline this morning, um, the first part of our outline comes from verses 1 and 2 of Ezra chapter 9. So make sure you're following along with me. and You're going to be able to see this. The first thing I want you to see about sin in the church is that bad company corrupts good morals. Let me say that again. Bad company corrupts good morals. Look with me at Ezra chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. We'll read those together real quick. It says, After these things had been done... And again, you could go back and look, and he's talking about they sacrificed to God, they've been worshiping God, they've made the journey, they're at the place where they're going to dwell with God. And now, after these things have been done, the officials approached me and said... The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their what? Abominations. So if they haven't separated themselves from people who are caught up in abominations, what do you think is going on in their lives? And so we've got God's people that because they have kept bad company, because they have refused to come out from among them and be separate to follow the Lord their God, they have now been joined up with the abominations of the people that do not follow God. He says, he names a few of them, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Now it's going to be important for you to remember this, Because only about half of this list is still alive at this present time. What the officials are doing are going back and quoting scripture that God told them when you come into the land that I'm giving you, do not yoke up with the people of the land, lest you serve their gods. Let me show you an example of that Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. This is where God warns his people. Right off the start, whenever they first are saved and delivered from bondage, the first thing God does is warns them that there are on this journey and in this land that I'm bringing you into, there are people there that do not serve me. You have to be careful that you do not yoke up and join with them whatsoever. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and He clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. Here's the first thing I want you to remember about this this journey that you're making. The things that God is clearing out of you so that He can be in the land that He dwells with you in, They're mightier than you. Any of y'all figured that out yet? But the good news is this. He who is in you is greater than he who is... But you need to understand something. The moment that you start making agreements with he who is in the world, instead of making your agreements with he who is in you, you're messing up you're going a bad direction. He says, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you, in other words, if you will trust in God, if you will keep your focus on Him, if you will keep your desires to follow Him and to repent of sin and turn away from it, God will deliver all those enemies into your hands. Even though they're mightier than you, He will give you the power to overcome them if you'll trust Him, if you'll follow Him. And then notice what He says next then you must devote them to what? See, that's the problem with us. We'll turn away from it, but we don't devote it to complete destruction, do we? You remember what David did to Goliath when he, when he, when he killed him with the... He killed him with the, with the sling and the rock. But did he stop there? He went and took Goliath's sword and cut his own head off. And so what we see in that is that We have to understand that when God gives our enemies over to us and He gives us the power to defeat them, you have to do whatever it takes to devote it to complete destruction. What does that mean for in your life? I don't know. For some people it may mean throwing the TV out. For some people it may mean getting rid of the smartphone and going to the flip phone. Can I get an amen? For some, I mean, I don't know what that looks like in your life, but you see what I'm talking about. If there is a sin that God is showing you and He is giving you the power over and you are following Him in it, you have to devote this thing to complete destruction. And then notice what He says next. I'm getting off my topic. You shall make what? No covenant with them. And you shall show what? No mercy to them. This is the way that you go to battle with the ones that God is driving out of your life. You shall not. Now in this case, he's talking about um, uh, actual physical physical relationships too. We're looking at it from the spiritual standpoint, but it still also compares in our lives to, to this as well. He says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Go on to verse 4 for me, please. For they would, and here's why. Here's why. For they would turn away your sons from what? Listen, I know some of you think that you're so much smarter than God. (laughs) I know some of you think that you're so much stronger than what God says you actually are. But can I tell you something? I don't care how strong you are. You have a natural bent in you towards sin. I'm sorry. You do not have a natural bent in you toward God. You cannot make covenants. You cannot show mercy to the enemies that are in your life. You have to to devote them to complete destruction because if you you decide to yoke up with them to, uh, to keep bad company, if you will, what will happen is they will turn you away from following Him. You know how many times I've seen it happen? So many times. And we always think to ourselves that, I can keep this yoke in my life and I can keep this relationship and I can keep this and I can keep that and I can continue to to hold on to this even though it normally leads me to do this and you fill in the blanks of what this and that is in your life. But the fact of the matter is this. They will turn you away from following Him to serve other things that are not God. And so he says, here would be the result of that. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and He would destroy you quickly. What you're going to be able to prove is that if you do not repent and turn away from these things, but you continue to pursue ungodliness and lawlessness, you're going to prove that you don't believe the promises of God. You're going to prove that your faith in Him and your call of coming out of darkness into the light is not genuine. And so He says, "...but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars." and you shall dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and their ashram basically were poles i guess you could we don't really know exactly what they looked like but they were basically poles that were carved into images i guess or like totem poles maybe but they represented the gods that they served and he said, you have to go in and you have to chop those things down when I bring you into this place. And you have to burn down these images with fire. This is what God told them before they ever went into the land. And here's what he wants you to understand. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company does what? It does not say good company makes bad morals better, does it? It says bad company will ruin good morals. That's what it says. And I know you want to look at me today and say, Oh, but brother, you don't understand. I know what I can do and I know what I'm capable of and I know what I know. Hey, you can tell me that all you want to. Tell it to Him. Tell it to Him. Bad company ruins good morals. God knew it. God warned them of it. God told them, you can't have any covenants. You can't have any mercy toward this. Now, I'm not saying that we are to pull ourselves out of the world. That's not what He's saying either. No, what he's saying is this. You are to be in the world, but not of the world. For those of you that need a mental picture to understand that, think about it this way. You want your boat to be in the water, but not of the water. If your boat is of the water, (laughs) if your boat is in the water, you're okay. But when your boat becomes of the water, there's a problem. And as Christians, you and I have to understand that we are to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What do I mean by that? A yoke is a um, it was a device or a tool, I guess you could say that um, farmers would use or or basically anybody that worked animals would use, and it was to bind two or more animals together so that they had to work together for a common purpose. Now, God told them in the Old Testament, you don't bind an ox and a donkey together. You know why? Because the ox has got one set of thoughts and one set of commands and one thing, and the donkey got a completely another set of commands. Got a completely different mind. The ox ain't thinking donkey thoughts, and the donkey ain't thinking oxen thoughts. And you yoke them up together and try to plow a field together. The problem is you need two animals or two people that have the same purpose, the same goal, and they understand... Here's the direction we're trying to go. Here's what we're pursuing. This is our goal. And if we work together, we can get there and we can get it done. But when you unequally yoke together, you have to understand, one is pulling one way and one is pulling the other. And if you are both in a yoke together of some kind, if, if one of you is pulling this way and the other was pulling that way, are you getting anything done? No. No. As a matter of fact, the stronger one is going to end up pulling the other one away, right? Again, you're not the stronger one. Now, if you're focusing on he who is in you and not he who is in the world, yeah, that's the stronger one. But the fact of the matter is this. When we start developing close personal relationships, close personal friendships, when we start looking at things like marriage... And we're not one of the main things I focus on in premarital counseling is I want to know your Christian background. Because one thing I have learned I had a couple that I married one time years ago, and I married this couple, and I, I was talking to them about their Christian background. They were both Christian, but one of them was Church of Christ, and one of them was Methodist. And I can remember talking to them about the difference in the two, two beliefs and understanding that, you know. Y'all don't walk the same way. And ultimately, we went ahead and decided that they would go ahead and get married. You You know what happened six months later? They were right back in my office, this close to divorce. And you know what the reason for it was? Because they learned that Church of Christ and Methodists were not going the same direction. I'm trying to tell you that when it comes to being yoked together, if God and His call in your life of coming out of sin and pursuing Him by faith, if that is genuine in your life, it's going to matter. If it ain't genuine in your life, it ain't going to matter. And then you're going to find out that you actually were equally yoked, but not in a good way. And so we have to understand that whether you're talking about marriage, whether you're talking about business, whether you're talking about best friends and close personal relationships, our job is to not be unequally yoked together with those kind of people. We are to be in the world and we rub shoulders with them and we love on them and we share the gospel with them and and there are so many different ways that we can be in the world but you've got to be careful that you are to be in the world but not of the world. Paul kind of, uh, he, he, he approached this, Nathan, I didn't give you the scripture, but uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to turn this into a four-week message too. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse, start in verse 14, Nathan. Look at how Paul addresses this in here. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that next word is what? For. Here's the reason why. For what partnership... Notice that word there. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? In other words, if you are a child of God, He has called you out of darkness. He has redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb. And you are following Him by faith. And now He has made you righteous in and of yourself. And He has led you into living for righteousness. Learning His ways. Pursuing Him. That's why you're here this morning. And then He says here, the other person, the unbeliever, Is not righteous. Is it because they're worse than you are? They're a worse sinner than you are? No, we're all sinners the same. But what it is, is this their mind is not set on coming out of sin and darkness and pursuing Christ. And because of that, they are a lawless people. Do you understand that? Not because they're worse than you, not because they're some terrible sinner. No, because they have not been called out of darkness of sin. Now, am I saying that, that unbelievers don't have a conscience? Yes, we all have a conscience. And there are unbelievers that are taught and trained morals that are better than some Christians live. Alright? But the fact of the matter is, they have not had the call of God to understand they are a sinner against Him. They have not humbled themselves to say, God, I need you to forgive me and cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness and lead me in your ways. That is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Now, with that being the case, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? None. Or what Fellowship, think about all the nouns that he uses here and all the different, um, or, or all the verbs he uses here and then all the different nouns that he uses. So he says what fellowship or what common goal, what brings you together has light with darkness? Light, what is the purpose of light? It, it eliminates darkness, Right? And so they are so completely opposite. Darkness has a job to make everything dark. Light has a job to make everything light. They are so completely opposite that there can be no fellowship there. There can be no partnership there. Go on to the next part. Or what accord or some versions you have say what harmony. Anybody know what harmony is? Harmony is when... When when we can sing different notes of of the scale and yet they sound good together. They just work together. What harmony has Christ with Satan? There is no harmony. And so he says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And then verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with the temple of idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And then here's the promise that God made. Y'all pay attention to these promises, because here's why we keep pursuing righteousness. Here's why we keep coming out of darkness into the light. Here's why we're at war with our sin. Because God made this promise. I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them. I'm going to dwell with you, God Almighty, the Creator of all things. Have you ever thought for one second what it's really going to be like to dwell with God? I want you to think about the things that you enjoy most in this cursed creation. Cursed, being destroyed day after day. And I want you to think of what it would be like to live in God's unlimited creation where there is no curse. And you dwell with Him and you walk with Him who He is because as much as you enjoy the ocean and the mountains and as much as you enjoy children and grandchildren and as much as you enjoy motorcycles and horses and four-wheelers and as much as you enjoy all the things of this world, whatever it is that you enjoy, all of them are a cursed image of God's beauty and power and glory. Can you imagine what it will be like if you love to stand on the beach and look out at the ocean? or you love to stand at the base of a mountain and view its majesty, and yet that's cursed. Can you even imagine what it will be like to walk with the God that all of those things image forth who He is? And He says here, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now keep going. Here's the next next thing he says. Therefore, in other words, because of this promise, therefore, here's what you need to do. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Now he's not saying here that as long as you stay perfect, then I'll receive you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is that the first fruit of true salvation is a turning away from your sin. Everybody thinks today, because somewhere in the 1800s, we turned salvation into come up here and pray this prayer and accept Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. That's not the way the gospel has ever been presented in the Bible. The gospel is presented like this. The wrath of God is coming because of your sin, but God will save you. And for all that will repent of their sin and turn from your darkness and trust in His salvation through Jesus Christ and follow Him by faith, I will save you. And so here God's making the same promise for the ones that actually see themselves as a sinner. Under the wrath of God. And for the ones that cry out to God, God, I need you to save me. And the ones that trust in what He has done for them to save them. The fruit in their life is that they turn away from their sin. And they turn toward God. And God promises that when you come out from among them and you get on this journey to pursuing dwelling with Me where you are My people and I am your God, I will receive you is the promise. I will be a what? A father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to Me, says the Lord God Almighty. Those are the promises that He makes if you have faith, to come out from among them and be separate. And then notice what he says next in verse 19. Keep going with me, Nathan. See you up there. I may have to find it. Hold on. I caught him off guard. Go to 7-1. I'm sorry. 7-1. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You ain't got to call me out like it. <laughs> Look at what he says here in 7.1. Alright? It could have been 19. I don't know why they made it 7. It should have been the same chapter, but go ahead. Look what he said. Since we have these promises, beloved, what is the command that he tells you to do? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And the one thing that stops you from doing that is when you have unequal yokes in your life, is when you have made covenants and you have made agreements and you have refused to destroy the enemies that God will give you the power to destroy. It's when you choose to love the things of the world more than the promises that God has given you. See, here's the thing about sin in your life. It makes false promises to you. Sin always says to you, you will be happier if you do this than you will be if you were to deny this and follow God. You'll be happier if you pursue this lust than you would be if you denied yourself that lust and followed God. And do you know how many times sin deceives you to actually believe it? And so here he says very plainly, you have to look at the promises of God and you have to remind yourself, me dwelling with God... Me, me being His child, Him being my Father, Him receiving me and welcoming me, me being able to walk with Him and enjoy all of His goodness forever and ever and ever, that promise is far greater to me. And that promise will make me far happier than anything the sin and the pleasures of this world can offer me. That is the key to cleansing yourself of every defilement. To not making agreements and covenants with the things and not showing mercy to the enemies that are in your life that God is moving out of this land so that He can come and dwell. Are y'all following me this morning? And so we have to understand that the very first thing we see in Ezra chapter 9 is another story where God shows us again that when the people began to make agreements with the enemies of the land, when they began to be unequally yoked with things in their life that are not pursuing God the way that He's calling us, the moment that those little sins begin to come into your life and you don't deal with them, that is the moment that things start going bad. And Ezra, he so knows the history of God that he goes back when these officials quote the Scripture to him because that's what they're doing. They're say, they come to him and they say, Ezra, we got bad news. You remember that scripture back in Deuteronomy that told them not to yoke up with the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, uh, so on and so on? Well, here they are. They've done it again, just like our forefathers did, just like the ones before them did. And so he says here very plainly, Ezra steps up and he goes, Oh my goodness, I know what happens when this takes place. I know what happens when a little sin that I could normally look at and say, well, people will be people. You know, I mean sinners are sinners. That's what they do. And that's not the way Ezra responds to it. Ezra, the leadership here, he hits his knees. He rips his clothes. He pulls his hair out. He pulls his beard out. And he cries and he mourns to the point that a whole group of people start seeing and hearing Him and they go, what's going on? And they start gathering around Him. And then I want you to notice the next thing that happens. I got, I got time. Thank you, God. God is slowing time down for me today. Alright. And then the next thing that happens is that mature Christians, because of the way they respond to sin, they can influence Those that are living in sin, if they respond to it the right way. Now notice what happens in verses 3 through 15. Let me get back to Ezra. Look with me at verse 3 of Ezra 9. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and my beard and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. So remember, they've heard the word, they know the word, and they know their sin because of the word. And they trembled because they know the history of what happens. They know this is the reason why God took them out of the promised land and led them back into slavery to begin with. They know this is the reason that 90% of the nation was destroyed and that there is only a remnant left. And they tremble at the words of God and look what happens. It says, "...because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until when?" The evening service. So picture this. You've got Ezra and he is so broken. And he knows what happens. He knows the discipline of God on God's people in sin. He knows the wrath of God on sinners. He knows the history of this... And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so here he recognizes this, and notice what happens in the next verse, verse 4, or verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees, and spread my hands to the Lord my God." And so because of Ezra's mourning, because of Ezra's praying, because of everything that happened, look with me at Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, and look what happened. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people did what? Wept bitterly. One of the things that you see in here is that when godly people mourn over the sin in their lives and over the sin in the godly people's lives, when they mourn over this, whenever they, they pray for them, whenever they pour their heart out to God and, that, and, and people see the disapproval of sin in my life, whenever they see that, one of the things that happens is, it breaks the heart of people who tremble at the Word of God. Listen, here's something that will happen in my life. If I'm not careful, I will find a way to, to make myself okay with sin in my life. I'll find a way to justify it. I'll find a way to deceive myself into thinking that this is okay. Somebody ought to said Amen. And so, one of the things that is healthy is whenever there is somebody in my life, somebody in my fellowship that can see that in my life, that can go, brother, what are you doing? Man, you can't keep on like this. Do you know the discipline of God? Do you know that those whom He loves, He chastises? Do you not know that there is danger in living the way that you are? Do you not know that if you continue in this sin and you refuse to repent of it that you're eventually going to prove that you believe the promises of sin more than the promises of God? And do you know what will happen to you if that's the case? The wrath of God will fall on you because of faithlessness. And so we need a church group of people that is not approving of each other's sins. You know, when one of you are living in sin, I know that you want everybody to just gather around you and pat you on your back and rub your head or whatever you want them to do. You want them to love on you and you want them to tell you... And I'm not telling you we ought to go around beating on each other either. Alright? I'm not telling you that. But I am telling you that we ought to love each other enough to to be broken when we see each other in sin and understand that, man, if you don't repent from this and if you don't turn away from this, either the discipline of God is going to come on you and a lot of times, whenever sin was in the camp, a lot of times the discipline didn't just fall on the one. The camp was affected by it in many ways. And so I want you to understand that we need people in our life. The right response to sin in the camp, especially from the leader's standpoint, is that we are to be so appalled and we are to be so mourning over it that that it gathers a crowd of people around to say, brother, what's wrong? And I'm able to stand before you and say, let me tell you what's wrong. Let me show you what's happening in the camp. Let me show you what's going on. And if this thing don't change, the discipline of God is coming on this person's life. And if they do not eventually repent from this, one day they're going to prove that their faith was not genuine and they are going to burn in a devil's hell. They will not walk with God. They will not dwell with God. They will not be a son or a daughter to God. They will be an enemy to God. And we need people in our life that are appalled at sin. Not just appalled at me. Not just appalled at at who I am or what I've done. No, we need people with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Sorrow that understands God is calling us out of this And He loved us so much that He did this for us. And now here we are going right back in to the very thing He saved us from. And there ought to be somebody in our lives that is appalled enough at our sin to cry on our behalf. When was the last time that you saw a sin in your own life? Let's start there. When was the last time that you saw a sin in your own life that made you mourn, that made you want to pull your hair out, that made you want to pluck your beard out, that made you want to sit at the altar of God and just cry for the whole day? If you ain't had one of them in a while, you're probably a little further away from God than you think you are. And if you ain't had that, When was the last time that you looked at one of your brothers and sisters or one of your family members and see sin in their life and it caused you to mourn at the thought of what will happen to them if they do not turn away from this in their life? Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? This is what we learn from Ezra right here is that we need people in our lives that mourn because mature Christians can influence others in their sin for their good by the way they respond to sin. Sin in their own life and sin in other lives. They influence them for their good and the people gather around and it causes the people to weep for their sin and it causes the people to to repent of their sin. When you go on to read chapter 10, you're going to be able to see, we're not going to get to it today, but you're going to be able to see that they finally get to a point where they say, Ezra, please stop crying. Ezra, please get up. It's your duty. You have to help us with this and here's what we can do. And they come up with their own plan of how they're going to repent from this sin. And we're going to be able to examine what that looked like and the pros and cons of it, but we're going to be able to see that the point is mature Christians can influence others in their sin if they really have a broken heart. And that broken heart comes from the fear of God. Let me just end with that this morning. We'll have three points to do next week. Number The, the, the last point is this right here you will never mourn over your sin or over the sin of others until you develop a healthy fear of the Lord. Now what do I mean by that? A lot of people will tell you today and a lot of preachers will tell you. They'll say, the fear of the Lord is not really fear. It is a reverent love. And can I tell you that there is a part of it that absolutely grows into a reverent love. But can I tell you that the beginning of wisdom according to Proverbs is the fear of the Lord? You first have to be able to see the wrath of God on your sin before you are going to come out of your sin and run to Him for salvation. See, The people see fear of the Lord as a negative thing. They think that the fear of the Lord is something that drives you away from God. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. That is an unhealthy fear of God. If your sin and your fear of the Lord and sin drives you away from God, that is an unhealthy fear. You know why? Because how far do you have to go to get away from God? That's the dumbest thing you can do. I remember when I was a kid, if my daddy was going to discipline me, I never once ran from him. Now some of y'all may have. I didn't run from my daddy. I went ahead and took whatever punishment it was going to be, no matter how bad it was going to be, because one thing I knew, I can't get away from daddy. Daddy going to find me. And when daddy gets me, it's going to be far worse than it would have been had I just took the discipline to begin with. A healthy fear of God is a fear that understands that God, He don't want to beat me. God don't want to punish me. God is trying to teach me. God is trying to show me that if you continue in this direction, this is where it leads And so I'm doing everything that I know to do to turn you around so that it drives you back to me. A healthy fear of God is a fear that understands God destroys sin. And if I have sin in my life, my only hope is that I get back to Him. My only hope is that I get back to Him for safety. I love the old song, Rock of Ages, Clef for me. You know, that means He is the rock. And picture yourself, you're climbing this rock and you're you're halfway up the mountain and all of a sudden you see this huge cloud coming and this storm is fixing to roll through and you're right in the open of it. But then you finally get to a place to where in that rock, there's an opening. And that rock opens up for you to be able to get inside of that rock so that when that storm comes through, It never touches you. And what we see is that God is our rock of safety. And He is the storm. And we need to be saved from Him. And so we say, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Open up and let me hide myself in Thee. And so what we see in that is that A healthy fear of God is not a God that runs you away from God because where are you going to go? There's nothing else out there but the storm. But a healthy fear of God is still fear. And it is fear that drives you to safety. And the only safety that there is is that you are in Him. You will never mourn over your sin Until you first see the storm that's coming. Until you first see that God has a rock that will cleft open for you to get in for safety. And whenever you see those things, the fear of the Lord is the thing that drives you to mourn for your sin so that you can run to the rock and get in it to be safe from the coming storm. We need people in our lives that see the storm. You need to understand something. If you have sin in your life and there is no discipline, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. If you see sin in your life and God is not doing something to you to try to turn you around and point you in the right direction, the Bible actually says you're not actually children. You're illegitimate. Hebrews chapter 12. Go read it for yourself. Those whom the Lord loves, He chastises. And those whom are not His, they're just out there for the world to do whatever they want with it. But you need to understand something. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now that fear does evolve into a genuine love and desire and respect, but make make no mistake about it, it needs to always be both. A fear that is legitimately fearful of the coming storm and a fear that legitimately understands He is my safety and He is my Father and He loves me and He will protect me and it drives me to Him. And when you see those two things, you will understand how to mourn for your sin and how to respond to it and how to mourn for people's sin around you and how to respond to it. Parents, I got so much, so much I'd like to say to you this morning. Don't think for one second, those of you that are raising teenagers, that if something happens to one of your teenagers, that God's just going to say, ah, they were just kids. I want you to understand, God takes sin serious. And we are to be people that when we see... We've, we've, we've come, become a people that normalize sin, right? I mean, our culture today has become so okay with so many things that are so ungodly. And we look at it today and we think, well, you know, it's just normal. It's not a big deal. Can I tell you something? I don't care how normal it is to the culture. God is the same yesterday, today, and He has not changed. And you need to understand something. If our children do not turn away from the sin in their life, they are going to prove that they believe the promise of sin more than the promise of God. And they are not going to walk with God and they are not going to dwell with God. And my friends, that ought to scare the H-E-L-L out of you. God forgive me if I was wrong for saying that. And that ought to lead you to be a people that mourn for your children's sin, that plead with them for where they are in their life, that does not just sit back as Ezra could have when these officials came and told him about the sin, he could have sit back and went, Ah, yeah, I know, but you know what? People are sinners. It's just what they do. No, we have a call to come out from among them and be ye separate. We have a call to cleanse ourselves from every defilement and to always be in this war with our sin because God has called us out of those things into His marvelous light of Jesus Christ and anybody that is not at war with their sin is either so far backslidden that if something don't change, discipline is coming or they don't know Jesus at all. And that ought to scare you. I'm going to close this morning with an invitation just to ask you this question. When was the last time you saw the sin in your life as so serious that you mourned in such a way that you didn't even know how to get the emotion out? When was the last time that you so saw the storm and the danger of sin? and the safety that God promises that it led you to humble yourself before Him, to confess it, and to get up and go running back to your Father? When was the last time you looked at the sin of your, your, your family, your friends, your children, the, the, the church people around you, and you mourned in such a way, and you pleaded with them in such a way that if you don't turn away and repent from this, this is not going to be good one way or the other? When was the last time that you saw the seriousness of sin in the camp?